Well, good morning. About that dry weather Pastor Matt was talking about, it's affected my, my voice a little bit. But it is good to be with you on the first Lord's Day of 2018. And it is great to see each one of you. That is an older hymn that we just sang, put to a new melody. And it was The Sands of Time Are Sinking. And I love that last phrase where the bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. Some of you were at weddings last year and you saw a picture of that when everyone stands and the bride comes forward and she is looking at him. And it's a beautiful picture. I will not gaze at glory, but on my Savior's face. You know what the greatest thing about Christ's return is? That we will be with Jesus. Not about necessarily escaping anything or getting something. It's about being with Jesus Christ. And I'm wondering if the first Lord's Day of this year, if that excites us at all. About being with Jesus. Peter wrote, the Apostle Peter wrote, um, whom you love, though you have not seen him. It's about a him. It's about a relationship. And what what would we be like as a local church if we became passionate again about the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord and King? He isn't just our our ticket into heaven. He is the glorious, eternal Son of God and our Savior. God is establishing a new kingdom which doesn't just replace the Garden of Eden, it surpasses it. And of all the books in the Scripture that point us to that new place, it's the book of Revelation, and that's where we're going to return to today. And that is why the New Testament concludes with the vision of this future. Jesus said this in the Gospels, when the Son of Man returns, okay, Jesus talking about himself, using the most often used title for himself, the Son of Man, when the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in, do you remember this? In Noah's days. Jesus gave the picture of a long time of waiting, a long period of normal life, and then sudden destruction. Because that's how it was in Noah's day. They were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings and family time right up until the day, as Jesus said, the floods swept them away. That's how Christ's return is going to be going to be sudden and for the person for the foolish person or the nearsighted person or for the spiritually blind person who says that such a silly message impending judgment that's so manipulative you're not going to intimidate me to be religious it's so much bigger than that and it's not that it shouldn't be any of that it is a message just like it was in Noah's day where they were like Finally, the ark maker and his family are gone. But can you imagine the eerie, mysterious silence when God shuts the door? And certainly the people were thinking it's almost like the animals knew they were supposed to get on the ark. Don't you think that would have at least caused a hmm? And the door shuts. Perhaps a gentle breeze was already blowing. But soon the skies turned violent. And Genesis 7:11 explains it this way. On that day... All the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. 
So my question for you this morning is, as the gentle winds of God's warning are blowing, and they will soon turn violent with destruction, are you safe? Have you entered into God's provision for your safety and rescue? I would say it this way. Are you in Christ? The apostles often use that phrase. Are you safe? Are you in Christ? Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation is not about the Antichrist. It's not even about the man of sin. It's not necessarily primarily at all about a woman riding a dragon. It is about Jesus Christ. Revelation 1.1 sets that clear. <laughs> a revelation of Jesus Christ. An outline of the book suggests that Revelation portrays the judgment of God. And that's where we're at. Nearly half of the book of Revelation is about judgment. So if this starts to feel like the Minor Prophets... It's by design that it feels like the minor prophets. God inspired this book to include nearly half of it being judgment. And the discerning reader is going to feel that quantity and ask why. Here's why. He's a God of grace who is inviting you to repent by showing you what's coming. Revelation portrays the judgment of God in groups of seven scenes. We've talked about this. You have seven seals. And then after the sixth seal, there's an interlude, and then the seventh seal is open, and inside that seventh seal are seven trumpets. Again, you have an interlude, and the trumpets then turn to seven bowls. By the time we get to Revelation 8, where I've had you open up, six of the seven seals have been opened by whom? Okay, by the Lamb. He's the only one. A sinless angel who we would be tempted to worship is not worthy to open the scroll. But the Lamb is, because it is redemptive crosswork. Judgment, as one person said, symbolizes God's penultimate, next to last, rather than ultimate, final activity in human history. We would say it this way, judgment is not the end. Even though it's in Revelation, judgment is a means to an end. And that end is, and track with me here, eschatological salvation. What does that mean? That means the salvation of God's people. And it means the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. That's what we are, we are moving towards. The seventh seal, the seven trumpets. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, the central and controlling theme of this book of Revelation is chapters 4 and 5, and it's God and the Lamb. Remember, they announced the Lion of the tribe of Judah, and John turns around and he doesn't see a lion, he sees, he sees a lamb, a sacrificial lamb. The Lamb now opens the seventh seal, and I think what stands out to us first, because we've already been talking about the Lamb and His worthiness and His majesty, but this idea of silence now kind of leaps off the page. Rather than immediate action, because we all, some of us have a, a basic understanding of these trumpet judgments, and we're sort of like, oh, here we go again. But instead of immediate action, there's, You feel that? 
silence. Do you know we live in a noisy world? Commentators, background music, endless chatter filling up the spaces of thoughtfulness. Even a lot of worship has become noisy, just filler to create a mood because the mood's not there because we haven't been worshiping and now we have to, in a sense, sort of create a mood of worship, not unlike secular entertainment. Then we become far more concerned about the style of music than the object of worship. You see the danger? And all this, our hearts have become liturgically noisy. We want to be pleased. We want to be entertained. We just want it to keep moving. We want the transition smooth. We want the microphones on. These are not bad things. But it is if we've lost the object of worship. God on His throne and the Lamb. In all this liturgical noise... In heaven, an interesting and unexpected development happens and there is silence for 30 minutes. Remember, God is using terms so that we understand what's happening. Let me just let me just let you feel what what silence in liturgy feels like for 10 seconds. Now, imagine 30 minutes. Why? In heaven, right before the trumpets are blown, there's that silence. The Old Testament writers took silence from different perspectives. In Exodus 14, 14, it's the anticipation of God's action. Exodus reads, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. In Habakkuk, it's the reverent response to God's power. Habakkuk 2.20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And perhaps the perspective that most closely fits with Revelation is a silent awe in light of God's impending judgment. Zephaniah 1.7 says, be silent before the Lord God for the day of the Lord is near. Zechariah 2.13, be silent, all flesh, before the Lord. Listen to this image. Just kind of create this in your mind. For he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. After 30 minutes of silence, eight angels are given tasks to do. Look at verse 2. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Verse 5, then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar. Now notice The priestly angel becomes an avenging angel and he throws it to the earth and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. This is the the second sort of storm theophany that the book records. There's there's this idea where this censer is taken and thrown to the earth 
And interestingly, the first three trumpets have to deal with fire. So there's this picture of this this censer being thrown down in response to the worship of incense, the prayers of the saints, and then this storm happens. And we should be in silence. There's a picture in Ezekiel 10 that where a man is clothed in linen, so an angel, and he is told to take coals of fire in his hands from the throne and scatter them on the city, symbolizing a fiery judgment. It's interesting that Ezekiel also combines the terms in Revelation where he talks about people being sealed on their foreheads and also about fiery judgment. The picture in Revelation here displays God's response to his people's cries for vindication. We've talked about this before, and this is not an uncommon theme for us, but we cry out, and I've talked to some of you in here where you're wondering where the God of justice really is. How can God be just and let that happen? I mean, if he's just, it's just going to let that continue to go on, I don't, want to, I don't even want to worship a God like that. And what Revelation is trying to highlight here is that justice delayed is not justice escaped. God is just. Even Abraham, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? The answer is what? Yes, he will. But in his time, it's interesting that these prayers are now offered. Perhaps the prayers we're praying right now for justice, for vindication, for those being persecuted, even for how we've been hurt. Two points here. The lamb and the avenging angel are not contradictory pictures. This wrath of God thrown down and the lamb, because it was the lamb who came to absorb the wrath of the father, so it was not poured out upon you. So these are not contradictory terms. They go together seamlessly. And secondly, these judgments reveal that catastrophes are not proofs of God's absence, but that he is actively working, trying to turn people back to him. That is what God is doing. He is the Lord of the earth. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He puts borders on the waters. And if those waters transgress those borders, it is God who did it. Can evil happen in a city, the, the minor prophet asks, and the Lord has not done it? Here's the point. Worship and justice are intertwined. God does hear your prayers. God hears the hurting prayers of your heart right now. God hears the prayers you've been praying for 10 years, even though he in his goodness has decided not to act yet. But he does hear our prayers. Interesting, we're going to see how the first four trumpets give images of the plagues, the signs and the wonders in Exodus when God was delivering his people out of Egypt. But listen to Exodus 2.23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. But they'd been praying for years. Do you know that God knows your prayers? He hears your prayers. 
The sufferings of God's people invite his action, even if his timing does not align with our desires. For example, this past week I read that in North Korea, school children are rewarded for going on a treasure hunt at home to look for Bibles. And when they come back and report to their teachers and then the teachers to the authorities, they're rewarded for the treasure they find. Most of the children not understanding that their parents will end up in a concentration camp in North Korea. An estimated 70,000 Korean Christians endure brutal torture in slave labor camps. So if true worship and justice are intertwined, how does that affect our prayers as a church? We pray for our brothers and sisters being persecuted in North Korea. Though we have never met them and probably will never meet them on this side of eternity. And God hears You want to be involved in justice? Start by praying. No, there's action too. I get that. But start by being burdened for people that you have never met. God is sovereign. We preach that often here, but in his sovereign plan, he has chosen to allow the prayers of his people to be part of the exercise of his will. Therefore, Jesus constantly invited his his disciples to pray and to intercede. Do you know what else prayer does? Prayer allows us to leave the matter with God, to sort it out in His way and in His timing. Because most often, we'll get it wrong. We'll get the timing wrong. Or we'll get the method wrong. Prayer sort of ensures us against that. It allows us to leave the matter with God as we obey Christ's command to love our enemies. Listen to what Jesus taught in Matthew 5, 44. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In Romans 12, the Apostle Paul writes to these believers in Rome. Do you think they faced difficulty, faced persecution as they were polytheists and pressuring the believers to forsake worshiping the one true God? Paul writes, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. You want to see a picture of that? Look at verse 6 as we get into the first four trumpets. Silence has been observed, prayers and incense offered, the censer thrown down, and the angels now begin to sound their trumpets, not all together, which was, sort of, which was more normal in worship, but now they blow them one by one. Just this individual clarion call for repentance. Look at verse 6. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. Maybe they all lifted them up at the same time. Maybe one lifted it up and the others were getting ready. Why Why these trumpet judgments? Why signs and wonders? And here's the simple answer. To turn people from idolatry... To the Lamb. Why does God chasten us? Whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. Do not despise the Lord's chastening. He is trying to turn us from idolatry to the Lamb. These are a clarion call to repentance. It's as if the Apostle John is writing in high definition with the volume turned all the way up in technicolor 
and you're sort of given these images. These images are supposed to make an impact. So let's look at them because this is a rescue mission. The first four trumpets recall the signs and wonders in Egypt. Why, why were those signs and wonders given? I mean, we're going all the way back to the second book of the Bible. Why were the signs and wonders? Because they weren't just all plagues. Some were, but some were just absolute signs and wonders. Why were they given? First of all, to display the sovereign power and presence of Yahweh. Second, to expose the powerlessness of the Egyptian gods. And third, to showcase that Pharaoh, which who was a god according to Egyptian worldview, could not win against the one true God. And you have this sort of these, these scenes unfolding so you could see, oh, wow, well, the Egyptian magicians are kind of keeping up. Oh, oh, no, they're not. Okay, and you sort of have this vivid imagery of, the, of Egyptian worship and Egyptian gods being defeated one by one by one. And then Pharaoh, who was a god himself according to the Egyptians, is thrown down. By, by whom? By the one true God. Each of these elements is presented here again, but the third person, the person of Pharaoh, is replaced by another person, and it's going to actually be replaced by the person who was working behind the scenes for Egyptian magic and worship, and it's Satan himself. Let's look at the first trumpet, because these elements combine to show once again that Satan cannot win against God. Look at verse 7. The first angel blew his trumpet. And there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown down upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up. And a third of the trees were burned up. And all green grass was burned up. Picture the recent fires in California, which then registered as the largest wildfire in the state of California. And imagine the loss of possessions. Now imagine the jungles of the Congo, Yellowstone National Park, the Serengeti, the Amazon rainforest, Yosemite, and many more, all torched and smoldering. The destruction of all green grass. Did you notice that where it's a third, a third, and then all? Did that stand out? Why all? The destruction of all green grass means the impending death of sheep, goats, and cattle. Right? And we think, oh, poor farmers, poor ranchers. No, that is the near end of the world's supply of meat, milk, and cheese. And most of you will feel that. Those who have worshipped the creation rather than the creator, those whose God is their belly, as Philippians, Paul says in Philippians, will feel this acutely. But remember, it's a partial judgment. One third of the earth, one third of the trees, all grass, allowing time for what? Allowing time for this to make its impact and for people to what? To turn, to repent. The purpose is to convert people from idols to the living God who is the creator of the earth, the trees, and the green grass. Read Genesis 1. Now we move to devastate, from devastation on earth to devastation at sea. Look at, look at verse 8. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain, remember, like a mountain, not a mountain, burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood 
A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. Now, remember the view in heaven, because the angel, the eighth angel takes that censer and mixed with coals from the fire and the prayers of the saints. He takes that and he what? He then casts it to the earth. So what is happening in heaven is now seen and felt on earth. This burning mass barreling towards the earth looks like a volcano, might be a large meteorite, but it lands in the ocean. And what happens? A third of the sea turns to blood. And you're recalling back to the plague in Egypt. Do you remember how that rendered them nearly useless when the, when the water supply turned to blood? Not only will a third of the sea life die, but a third of all ocean-going ships. That's what the text says. Cargo ships for food, navies for protection, transport for personnel, cruise ships for pleasure. Maybe mostly cruise ships. Well, that's my, my interpretation. Fishing boats. That one hurts. And recreational boats. I mean, when this happens, when this fiery mass hits the ocean, you have a third of the ships, a third of the sea life, and that is an effect. But remember again, it's a partial judgment. A third of the sea, a third of the sea creatures, a third of the ships, allowing time for people to what? Repent. The purpose is to convert people from idols to the living God, who is the creator of the sea and the sustainer of all sea life. Now, look at the third trumpet. We move from devastation on the earth to devastation at sea, now to devastation upon the rivers. Now it's going to touch the fresh water. Look at verse 10. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. Again, it looks like a meteorite or a falling star. And now judgment falls on fresh water and the star has a name. And the star's name is Wormwood, and its effect upon a third of the fresh water is Wormwood. It's a bitter-tasting shrub that became a symbol of bitter sorrow and death. And for that reason, Proverbs wisely uses this in warning us against the forbidden woman. In Proverbs 5.4, she is called bitter as Wormwood. Amos writes this, he compares injustice to wormwood and he says, you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. Now this seems like a meteor or falling star hits the fresh water and it makes it bitter and undrinkable and it paralyzes civilization. It is said that wormwood is so potent that one ounce of it can still be detected in 524 gallons of water. Of course, my mind goes like 525, you can't taste it, but 524, you can. But the point is, the point isn't technicalities. The point is, you'll feel and taste the effect of it. And you'll be thirsty and you'll go to drink and you can't because it's bitter as wormwood. And then it says, it's not just bitter. The next statement tells us that many people died from the water. This is another partial judgment. One-third of the rivers, one-third of the springs of water, allowing time for people to what? To repent. 
The purpose is to convert people from idols to the living God, who is the provider of fresh water. The fourth trumpet and the last one we will consider this morning before the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 12. The fourth angel blew his trumpet. And a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. One of the hymns we sang this morning referenced back to when there was supernatural darkness, when the light of the world was was extinguished. When they killed Jesus, there was supernatural darkness over the earth at midday. This will be supernatural darkness, much like what covered Egypt. Every heavenly body is mentioned, sun, moon, stars, a darkness so thick that even a third of the night will be considered dark. Find that interesting? Even nighttime will be dark. Perhaps like what Exodus 10.21 described of that darkness as a darkness to be felt. Is how the scriptures put it. But again, this is another partial judgment. One third of the sun, one third of the moon, one third of the stars. By the way, who created those heavenly bodies? God. And who is the world rejecting, though they love the sunlight? Rejecting God. The purpose is to convert people from idols to the living God who is creator of the sun, moon, and stars. And he's giving time for people to what? To repent. And turn to the one whom Isaiah 45 verse 7 says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And Jesus warned in Mark chapter 13, be on your guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Are you safe? Are you in Christ? not asking if you're a cultural Christian because you're not a Hindu or a Muslim. I'm asking, have you bowed your heart and your knee to the Lamb as God and King? Not just your buddy. Is He your Lord? Because Philippians says, one day every knee shall bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Some will do that and they will still depart into eternal darkness. Perhaps a reminder here that darkness is coming for those who do not turn. So a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars. But there is the light of the world who rescues you from darkness. By using allusions to the plagues on Egypt where God acted with signs and wonders and protected his people providentially and supernaturally, God is saying that he has acted in the past And he is about to act again. The purpose of the first four trumpets is to show beforehand that idols cannot save. The material world is not your answer. Yahweh alone is king. Remember the the image in Revelation 6, 16 to 17 of people, quote, calling to the mountains and rocks, 
fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand and the rocks don't listen to them. These trumpets are an apocalyptic warning to repent. This is not a new message. The gospel, the good news in light of these judgments is not a new message. Listen to what Jesus said. Mark 1.15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In Romans 10.13, the Apostle Paul could then say, when he's talking about Jesus Christ as Lord and King, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, will be safe. Are you safe this morning? Let's observe about a minute of silence as we respond to God's word and examine our own hearts before we take of the Lord's Supper together. I will pray at the end of a time of silence.